1: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy,
2: Head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, it's coming to you as one of our pre-election specials from Washington, D.C. And this week, The Economist is asking, why does Donald Trump want to be president? I am officially running for president
3: of the United States, and we are going to make
2: our country great again. The Trump offensive has been a gift to a nation of satirists.
3: I won the debate, I stayed calm, just like I promised, and it is over. I don't remember what the question was, but it doesn't matter, because I'm not going to answer it anyway.
2: (laughs) And he's regularly given a scolding too. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. So he's doing
0: this to inflame and to incite and to get to draw attention, which is, seems to be his organizing principle of his campaign.
2: But Trump somehow manages to retain the support of the militant many, the Trump army, who've kept him in the White House race to the very end. So what makes this brash disrupter of American politics as usual tick? And why does a man who built himself Trump Tower in the heart of Manhattan now want to take up residence at the heart of American power in the White House? To find out what motivates the Donald, we dropped in on Mark Fisher at the Washington Post. He's co-author of a well-received biography, Trump Revealed, and he thinks his central character is less extrovert than he appears.
3: He has led a deeply isolated, secluded life. As a billionaire in New York, he's not someone who goes out to a store. He's not someone who goes for a walk on the street.
2: We'll also hear from Ali Russell-Huschchild, a nominee for the National Book Award, who's researched the lives of voters in the abandoned backwaters of American prosperity, the
4: Trumpian heartlands. For five years, I had been studying the kindling and now I saw the match that was lighting it. And from Sharon
2: Jarvis, a specialist on political communication, on what Trump speak reveals about his ambitions.
1: I think the lens of entertainment and the lens of humor is a really productive way of understanding how he's trying to connect with the audience.
2: Whatever dismay a man dubbed the master of disaster might cause, he's been good news for social media satirists and comedy writer Sage Boggs from Mike.com is
0: definitely amused. People were making jokes during the third debate like, SNL's just going to print the transcript of the debate and read it. It's just so insane.
2: But first, in search of Trump. My producer Cheryl Brumley and I checked into his new hotel in Washington DC. Alas, not into the $3,500 capital suite, but to join Mr Trump and watch him cut a ribbon in this renovated historic building in the company of the Trump clan. It's unusual for a presidential candidate to make a stop in Washington, just days before an election fought out in the swing states. But the Donald does it his way. It gave us a glimpse into the aspiring first family and a chance to examine the role Mr Trump's projection of himself as a business winner plays in this presidential campaign. We've come to the launch of the Trump Hotel here on Pennsylvania Avenue and it's a mixed bag of protesters against him and enthusiasts. But there are also quite angry protesters talking about his alleged racism and holding up placards. We go. We go. Not- and yet, on the other side, only a few yards away, is a lady holding up Maryland for Trump and Pence. The crowd are engaging quite politely with each other. But the mood might not be quite so courteous once Mr Trump arrives and gets going. So we've just threaded our way through the protesters to the grand entrance of the Trump Hotel, past the presidential ballroom, hubristically named perhaps. And I'm curious to see what tone Mr Trump is going to strike. Clearly this is something of a comeback event for him after some very bad news in the last couple of weeks. We're heading into the ballroom now.
3: Please join me in welcoming Ivanka Trump.
1: This is an important moment for our family and our company, and it wouldn't be possible without the hard work and support of this visionary man. So without further ado, let me introduce my father, Donald J. Trump. Thank you.
3: Right now, just about everything our government touches is broken or they break it. Don't ever let anyone tell you it can't be done. The future lies with the dreamers, not the cynics and the critics. Everywhere I go in this country, all I see is untapped potential waiting to be set free.
2: Donald Trump has just stepped down from the stage here in his new hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. He's heading out to cut that ribbon in the grand ballroom pursued by about 250 members of the press by the look of it. It's an unusual step for a presidential candidate to spend time in the closing stages of a campaign opening a hotel, even if it is his hotel. But Donald Trump has done most things differently. With the rigour of a martial progression, the Trump family appeared on stage. Donald in sober Republican stripy tie, daughter of Anka in cruise collection outfit. The new hotel, on the site of the post office building, is a vast Romanesque 19th century construction, with the kind of lavish detail that might stand for Trumpism a 60-metre atrium, 39,000 electric lights and 10 floors, turreted offices, and oak panelling included. But Donald Trump has revitalised and reopened a hotel that stood empty for years. Under budget, he claimed, and ahead of schedule, a boast that he said he could apply to governing America. It was a speech hostile to big government, it could have been written by early Ronald Reagan, but it was also remarkably emollient by Trump's standards. He wanted to go into failing schools, the inner cities, and deliver a national plan of revitalization. He was tired of asking Americans to defer their dreams to another day. So we thought we'd follow Mr. Trump to the ballroom and cut that ribbon.
3: This is for many, many years of success, many, many years of great jobs. And I just want to thank everybody for your hard work and for being here today. Thank you very much.
2: The celebratory bells ringing out there for the launch of the Trump Hotel in Washington DC. Mr. Trump has just left. The figure that we saw today Was not Trump unleashed, as we've seen in the last few weeks, shooting from the hip verbally and often lashing out at Hillary Clinton? No, this was a Donald Trump who'd been to courtesy school. Overall, Mr Trump is struggling in the race, but he's just had good news with polls in Florida, putting him a couple of points ahead of Hillary Clinton. So Mr. Trump is off from the ornate surroundings of his grand new hotel in Washington to North Carolina and he badly needs to stir up some of that early enthusiasm for his campaign before it was dogged by revelations of his comments about women and before the bitterness set in. And if he's on a losing streak, well, he's fighting to the very end. At least he's got a big new hotel to show for it. That was our hardship posting from the lounge of the swanky Trump International Hotel in D.C. One man who spent a lot of time unravelling this contender's eventful business life, personal upheavals and political motivation is Mark Fisher, co-author with Mark Cranich of Trump Revealed. The biography sets out to expose the lesser-known sides of the presidential candidate. So I began by getting Mark's take on our key question. Why does Donald Trump want to be president?
3: Well, initially, I think he wanted to get into and change the national conversation uh, to make himself as ever at the center of of it all. And I think that he wanted to show the politicians how easy it was to build a consensus around a program of, of extreme change. Then, as it became more realistic that he might actually get somewhere with his candidacy, it became all about winning, which is what much of
2: Donald Trump's life is about. You say his life has been about winning, but did he go into this contest intending, fully intending to emerge as president, or are there other drivers and perhaps other motives too?
3: I think initially he had other things in mind. Initially, he wanted to uh, embarrass the politicians. He wanted to get across the idea that he was this decisive CEO who could get things done and who was a truth teller who would stand up against the political correctness of the age. And he might have been satisfied with that. But as soon as it became realistic that he could go somewhere, maybe even get the nomination, he was all in and he's never wavered on that.
2: Your book starts, naturally enough, with Trump's childhood. What was his upbringing like? And how do you think it informs the man we see today?
3: Donald Trump told us that he has essentially not changed since he was in the first grade and it's a rare bit of insight into himself. Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, was a major real estate developer in New York City, but not in Manhattan, rather in the outer boroughs of Brooklyn and Queens. He was, however, at home a cold and distant figure. He didn't know Donald's friends' names. It wasn't until Donald was in his mid-teens, when he was old enough and had the patience enough to start hanging around in his father's office, that uh, Donald and his father formed a bond and Donald became almost literally an apprentice to his father and that's where Donald Trump got the bug about being a developer but he wanted to go further than his father ever did.
2: Your team of reporters spent quite a lot of time talking to Trump and I wondered what do you think would motivate him to do so given that perhaps the Washington Post and everything associated might not be his most likely candidate I suppose to the biography that he'd hoped for.
3: Well, Donald Trump was extremely generous and gracious with his time with us. He spent more than 25 hours with our reporters for this book. Uh, Every time we had a one-hour appointment with him, he would double or triple the amount of time. And he said he was doing so because he was having great fun. I think that was a piece of it. I think it was also important to him that he was learning a lot about himself from us. Yes, he occasionally would threaten us and say, if this is a bad book, I'm going to come after you. And he would tell us stories about the lawsuits that he'd brought against other writers. But in the end, he was quite pleased and touched to have the Washington Post in his office.
2: One of the most influential men in his life was Roy Cohen, a very powerful lawyer, and comes across not too well from your account of him. But it's also a dominant story of of how you can remake yourself using the law and using lawyers. What's the nature of the relationship between these two men? Why does it matter so much?
3: The three main influences in Donald Trump's life are his parents and Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn, the infamous lawyer who represented Senator Joseph McCarthy in the red-baiting chapter of American history in the 1950s. And Roy Cohn, in his later years, was a very difficult lawyer in New York City, very renowned for his successes, but uh, generally reviled for the way he went about pressing his cases. Donald Trump and Roy Cohn had a chance meeting in 1973 when the federal government was suing Trump and his father for race discrimination in the way they went about renting apartments. They did not rent to black customers when blacks came in seeking an apartment. uh, This was kind of an open and shut case for the government. And Trump was complaining about this to Roy Cohn. And Cohn told him, don't give in, don't settle, fight this thing, fight it as hard as you can. And they teamed up and spent two years fighting the federal lawsuit. They lost. But it was an early sign of a partnership between Roy Cohn and Donald Trump that really set the tone for Trump's business practices for a half century to come. Two big lessons he learned from Roy Cohn. One, when you're attacked, attack back 10 or 100 times harder. And the other, All publicity is good publicity.
2: How important is The Apprentice in terms of laying groundwork for the political Trump, the Trump who can bid for the presidency?
3: There is no Donald Trump candidacy for president without The Apprentice. Prior to The Apprentice, Donald Trump by his own view was being perceived in much of the country as something of a cartoon character as someone who was all over the tabloids uh, with the dissolution of his first two marriages uh, was someone who uh, had appeared on Wrestlemania and other fairly lowbrow entertainments uh, and along about 15 years ago he decided that he really needed to remake his image to appeal to middle America and to persuade middle Americans that he was a decisive CEO, that he was someone who would speak plainly to the American people, who would not uh, beat around the bush or withhold truths, that he was the one uh, person they could trust to to tell them where things really stood. And The the Apprentice was built around that premise. The Apprentice was built in order to change Donald Trump's image and make him someone that Americans might turn to uh, as they became more and more disillusioned with politics and parties of all stripes.
2: And here's the conundrum, really, about Trump as far as many critics are concerned, that this extremely wealthy man is able to stylize himself as the champion of the poor and the downtrodden and the disenfranchised, and yet he seems to do it rather well. Is that something that you understood rather better after you'd spent so much time looking at the phenomenon?
3: Yeah, the more you get into Donald Trump's early life, the more you begin to understand that he's had a 60-year affair of despising the elites, even though he's become part of them, uh, even though he essentially grew up in the elite. Uh, But he's always fancied himself a man of the people. He's always preferred to hang out with his security guards rather than his fellow executives. He's always felt that he was not accepted by the other real estate developers and major wealthy families of New York City. Uh, And so he's always had this sense of himself as an outsider. The coarseness the rawness, uh, everything that many people find despicable about Donald Trump actually connects emotionally with a lot of Americans who feel that the people in the elite, that those people speak a language that is distanced and that is apart from authentic life.
2: We're also looking at Mr. Trump's language as it happens in this broadcast. Give us some examples, if you could, perhaps from different sides of Trump in the way that he's used language.
3: His language, his manner, are very much arrested in the period of his youth of the 1950s, and he gets into trouble for saying all kinds of insulting things about various ethnic groups, about women, and Donald Trump is often, in those cases, surprised that people are offended by the way he speaks uh, because he has led a deeply isolated, secluded life. As a billionaire in New York, he's not someone who goes out to a store. He's not someone who goes for a walk on the street. His preference always to go home by himself at night and watch TV. So he is someone who has basically taken in the world through television, and his language reflects that, and his language is kind of stuck in a period uh, when he was out and about with people when he was a kid, more than half a century ago.
2: As we speak, the polls are showing Hillary Clinton uh, in the lead, she looks like she will at least win the White House, whatever happens uh, further down the ticket what do you think Trump's response will be? And do you take seriously his suggestion that he wouldn't accept the result of the election?
3: Donald Trump's pattern throughout his life is that when he loses or fails at something, it is never his fault. So his first uh, instinct is always to lash out at others. It's either to blame the people around him or to argue, as he has in recent weeks, that the system is rigged. In this case, the media is rigged. The The Republican Party is rigged. The voting system is rigged. All of this is Donald Trump classically laying the groundwork for a possible loss, creating uh, the scenario in which he would portray this as something that happened to him because of what others did. When things go well for Donald Trump, he takes the credit. When they go poorly, there's always someone else to blame.
2: I've heard two possible accounts broadly speaking, in Washington about what might happen in the event of a Trump loss. One is the disaster scenario. He doesn't accept it. And that, depending on how dramatic you want to be, goes up to protest and possible uh, violence in which he sets one side of the country against the other yet again. And the other says, you know, he goes off and finds a TV station. What's your reckoning? What do you think he'll do?
3: He will want to find a way to stay in the public limelight. That does not have to be in politics. Uh, You know, I think he will want in the initial outburst to show that he has changed American politics, that he has altered the course of the Republican Party, that the country cannot continue as it was before because of what he has contributed. But once he has sent that message, his pattern is to vanish.
2: Our thanks to Mark Fisher, Trump biographer. But Trumpism isn't a phenomenon that can only be understood from Washington. Its energy derives from the support its apostle has been able to find in parts of the country that feel the American dream has passed them by, gone in exported jobs to China, or the preserve of those protected by better location, education and life chances. Arlie russell Hushchild is a sociologist at the University of California, Berkeley. She spent the best part of five years with some of Donald Trump's biggest supporters, researching her new book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. So when did she first notice the rise of
4: what we now call Trumpism? I, in March of this year, went to a primary rally of Donald Trump in New Orleans And saw this ecstatic crowd, mainly whites, mainly older, and mainly Tea Party. And I realized that for five years I had been studying the kindling. And now I saw the match that was lighting it. And what do you think that Donald Trump was able to tap into
2: in that voter segment? Because now there are a number of tropes that we hear again and again, disenfranchised white working class. But you were actually reporting on the communities, as you say, before he came along. So what did you see as the, as the spark? What
4: really mattered to them was not the question I brought which was about the red state paradox. How could the poorest and least educated states with the the lowest life expectancy and worst health take the most money from the federal government? So revile the federal government. That was my question, but it wasn't theirs. What loomed larger and what I think Donald Trump tapped into is what in the book I came to call the deep story. It's a story of life as it feels. So you take facts out and you take moral judgments out, You just look at how it feels. And to them, how it feels is you're waiting in line as a pilgrimage to the top of a hill where the American dream awaits. You've been waiting a long time, you've worked hard, you feel a tremendous deserving for it. And then you've seen line cutters, who are they? Well, blacks that now have access to jobs that used to be reserved for whites, Women, even more so, now have access to jobs it used to be available just to men. You see immigrants, refugees, and these groups seem to be sponsored in this deep story by Barack Obama, who's waving to them. He's their sponsor. The feeling is that the federal government, which he represents, has become the instrument of their own pushback in line, their own marginalization. They feel culturally marginalized, demographically marginalized, religiously marginalized, and fundamentally economically marginalized. But of course, throughout the US, the median wage of men has declined from 1973 to 2013. and What Trump offers them is first an acknowledgement of loss. When he says you know America is down on its heels. He's saying something that they know from everyday life. That's right. He's not talking about the whole country. He's there hearing it as oh the guy gets that I feel down. The Trump slogan make America great again clearly
2: resonates in the kind of communities that we've been talking about. But Knowing people well, as you do after such a a long time living and working among them, do you think that people literally believe that message? Or are they
4: simply happy to be heard? I think a lot of it is they're very happy to be heard. They have... Uh, felt themselves silenced and every other group has held up its flag and uh, so they feel like they've been stoically overlooked. So they're rejoicing in that. They also don't believe that he will do all the extreme things that he says he will do. I hear people say, well, he's just saying he's going to abolish the Environmental Protection Agency now, but once he's elected, he wouldn't do that. Our thanks to Ali Russell-Huschchild.
2: One thing Trump has created is a distinctive vernacular. Ben Hubel is a data journalist at The Economist and an expert in language analysis, and he spoke to linguist Sharon Jarvis at the University of Austin, Texas, about how Trump's language magnifies his message and disconcerts his rivals.
4: In respect to the recent
3: presidential TV debate, can you explain the persuasion style the presidential candidate Donald Trump used to convince the audience with?
1: Sure. Absolutely. And I'm going to reach for a little bit of context here. At the University of Texas, we have a database where we can examine presidential debates going back to 1948. And our quantitative analyses have shown that challengers and incumbents, Democrats and Republicans, winners and losers, all tend to be very grounded and restrained in their presidential debate discourse. In 2016, Secretary Hillary Clinton has modeled those patterns, what's intriguing to your question is that Donald Trump is absolutely an outlier. He has not restrained his comments as other presidential candidates have. One really notable way of interpreting this has come from one of our graduate students, actually, who believes that we should look at Trump more as an entertainer than as a Republican or even as a politician. I think the lens of entertainment And the lens of humor is a really productive way of understanding how he's trying to connect with the audience. My instinct, too, is that perhaps it has really shaped how the audience comes to know him. And there's a terrific book by a scholar, Daryl West, on celebrity politics that addresses how audiences respond to people we come to know through popular culture as opposed to traditional political backgrounds. And he makes three really powerful arguments. The first is that we often look at celebrities as having less ambition than a traditional political candidate. And I find this really yeah. compelling if you look at Mr. Trump, and that he certainly is deeply ambitious and has had tremendous successes, and yet audiences don't look at him as particularly greedy. A second point is that audiences are far more uh, forgiving when it comes to prior transgressions, and so perhaps they respond to these critiques about Mr. Trump's private life differently than we would a traditional politician.
3: And compared to Clinton, you said he fundamentally differs from any other candidate, but how does he particularly differs from, from her style?
1: Sure. And we've been running her uh, speeches and her debate transcripts against everyone else going back to 1948. And she displays the hallmarks of a winning style. She is both optimistic and a little bit cerebral. He uh, departs on all of those notions. And the matter of tone, I think, is particularly well taken, in that since 1948, the more positive candidate wins. And linguistic markers of tone could be telling us a few things. It could be telling us that the candidate is trying to be optimistic and lead the country in a direction, and or uh, negative tone could be telling us that they're behind and waging attacks on the opponent. But what's notable now is that Trump does not have the linguistic style, at least, Of the folks who have uh, won the White House, he's just a little bit more negative and less, uh, less cerebral.
3: And sort of as a last question, can you tell me if there's anything from Trump or from Clinton other people can learn? Um, who are in politics, um, are there particularly best practices they're following?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And here I'm going to reach to some of the research on political humor, specifically my colleague Diana Young at the University of Delaware. And in watching Trump's efforts at humor, she's noticed that he often punches out, his jokes are about other people, and he punches down to those who have less power. In contrast, to Hillary Clinton, when she uses humor, often punches in, so the joke is sometimes on her, and punches up to people who have more power, corporations, etc. And while Trump is consistently engaging and compelling and draws attention, that out and down is, over time, uh, people are beginning to regard it as mean-spirited. And we simply haven't seen the presidential candidates use humor in that way in recent memory.
2: The Economist's Ben Hubel talking to Sharon Jarvis there. There's certainly been a rich vein of comic response to Trump. Sage Boggs is a former comedy writer at The Tonight Show. He's now a video writer at Mike.com with a neat sideline in tweets parodying the presidential elections, most notably the Donald.
1: My
0: friends and I were taking shots every time Trump interrupted Clinton. My BFF Chad is dead. Frowny face.
2: We spoke to Sage about what insight he's gained into the candidate by developing his digital parody.
0: It's not very deep. It's kind of a surface level understanding of Donald Trump. I think he has so many quirks and things about him that the media blows up that it's hard to pinpoint exactly what he is. So writing a tweet about him is usually kind of like whatever the controversy is that day. I kind of tune into that controversy. But overall, understanding Trump is very difficult. Whereas someone like Gary Johnson, I think you have very few data points to go off of. Everyone kind of knows he's a libertarian and that he has no chance of winning the election. So kind of wrapping your head around that and writing a tweet that everyone can relate to is very easy. But for Trump, there's so many data points. There's a new thing every day that we're mad at him about. Um, There's a new controversy. So to write a joke that encapsulates all of that at once is very difficult. So this, I, I do a lot of tweets that are dialogue between people. And this is a dialogue between Donald Trump and Gary Johnson. So Trump says, Aleppo is a disaster. Gary Johnson says, oh, why does he keep using Spanish words? he's almost beyond parody at this point. Like he can take something Clinton says or Gary Johnson says and and heighten it to this kind of absurd degree, but Trump is already so inherently absurd that it's like, where do you take this? Um, So this next dialogue is from the third debate between Chris Wallace, the moderator, and Donald Trump. Chris Wallace, who would you appoint to the Supreme Court? Trump. Correct, I'm supremely good at courting women. Wallace, no people were making jokes during the third debate like, SNL's just going to print the transcript of the debate and read it, it's just so insane. This is a dialogue between the media and everyone else. So the media says, Donald Trump kicked a baby goat into the stratosphere after scamming your grandma out of her life savings. Everyone else, yeah, that sounds about right. So this is a meme that always gets passed around on October 3rd because in the movie, Lindsay Lohan, or her, like, inside voice says, on October 3rd, he asked me... He asked me
1: what day it was. It's October 3rd.
0: And that became a meme. So every October 3rd, it's kind of passed around. And I just changed it to this kind of, like, long, highfalutin question about politics. So instead of, on October 3rd, what's the date... Or October 3rd, he asked me what the date was. She says, on October 3rd, he asked me whether I thought the regret of left acceptance of the liberal ideals was more or less detrimental to American society than the alt-rights conflation of race and idolism. I saw someone tweet something recently that was like, I can't wait for all the comedians to try to start writing jokes again after this election. I think everyone will get bored of Trump and Hillary, like, whoever wins, and it'll just be, you know, normalize again, I'll probably start tweeting really bad jokes again about kind of lame things. Christmas is coming up, maybe some holiday-themed jokes will work. Uh, I'm, a little, I'm a little stressed about it, to be honest.
2: Our thanks to Sagebogs making this podcast great again. And it's only fitting to end our show with just a few words from the man of the half hour, Mr. Donald Trump.
3: Hello, everybody. Ooh, what beautiful sound. That's good sound.
2: A comment on our shows? We like to think so. That's us done for this week. Do join us again next time on The Economist Asks, when we ponder why the woman who was first lady wants to go back to the White House as president. From Washington,
4: this is The Economist.